Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Thursday, April 22nd. I'm Nyla Boudou. Here's what you need to know today. The DOJ has started investigating the Minneapolis Police Department, plus a national restaurant labor shortage. We start with today's one big thing, the White House's first international climate summit. Today, on Earth Day, President Biden begins hosting a virtual climate summit. It's part of an attempt to reestablish the U.S. as a leader on climate policy. Axios' climate and energy reporter Andrew Freeman is here to tell us about one big new commitment towards that goal. Good morning, Andrew. Hi, thanks for having me. Andrew, the U.S. is going into this lacking some credibility on this issue. Is this a test for President Biden to show world leaders how serious he is about climate change? I think it's definitely a test. At this point, we have entered and left two major climate treaties, the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement. And this summit itself is a signal that America is back. Almost every cabinet member is appearing at this in the two days that it's running, even the Director of National Intelligence and the Secretary of Defense. So they're really showing the world that we're taking an all-hands on-deck approach and that the target is ambitious. Speaking of ambition, we're hearing that the president is expected to announce a big goal when it comes to carbon emissions. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, we're expecting either a range target or a point target, but the target will include trying to halve our carbon emissions by 2030. So that would be 50% reduction based on 2005 levels by 2030. And that means taking steps, for example, to electrify the vehicle fleet across America. So that means doing stuff in the infrastructure bill, such as electrifying the postal service, rolling out new electric cars. It means taking steps to reduce emissions from power plants. That's probably regulatory action from the EPA. So it's really about a sector-by-sector approach and all-of-economy approach. Andrew, just yesterday we heard that China is actually going to be at this summit. I wonder when we think about other world leaders, what their calculus is in going along with what the U.S. proposed and that in three years there may be another administration in power. China is the number one emitter right now. They are not the biggest per capita emitter. That's still the United States. And they are not the biggest historical emitter. So historically, the United States and Europe caused this problem, if you think about it, the way that China would approach it. It's very hard to argue that the U.S. has the credibility to kind of stand up and get on some moral high ground and say, you must do more to China, to India, to Brazil. It's very easy for me to see other leaders being very skeptical of U.S. leadership right now and really thinking what's going to happen in three years if we take these potentially expensive steps following their lead and then they don't do it. But if you're a world leader and you're looking at this summit, you might just want to make a good speech and see what happens over time. Axios' climate and energy reporter, Andrew Friedman. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having me. We'll be back in 15 seconds with why restaurants are having such a hard time finding workers. Welcome back to Axios Today. 
Life for restaurants and restaurant workers during the pandemic was tough. More than two and a half million restaurant jobs were lost and more than 100,000 eateries closed. Now, the businesses that survived can't find the staff to fully reopen. Axios business reporter Erica Pandy is here to explain this nationwide hospitality shortage. Good morning, Erica. Good morning, Nyla. Erica, how severe of a labor problem are restaurant owners and managers dealing with right now? So one example that our colleagues in Charlotte reported really crystallizes it. A restaurant in Charlotte, North Carolina, was down a part-time dishwasher before the pandemic and was really trying to fill that role. Now they're down 10 servers and four kitchen folks. So it's really, really dire. Restaurants are in a position where they're opening for only a few days a week or they're opening for only one meal a day because they just can't find the people to make it work. And what really surprised me and got me interested in the story is just how widespread this is. From Martha's Vineyard to Huntsville, Alabama, to New York, upstate and the city, reporting the same story of restaurant worker shortages. We talked to one longtime server, Thomas Falla, in Philadelphia about why he left. We weren't open for about two weeks with that initial lockdown. And then after that, it just was obviously not safe. The amount of precautions that were being taken just seemed to be indicative of us not being ready to go back. Eric, are there other reasons we haven't talked about why it's hard for restaurants to find workers right now? Restaurant work has always been, you know, long hours, tough, super demanding. But the pandemic added this sense of hazard that we never saw before, like the fact that you could get ill from going to work. One big talking point that's going around and something that employees are saying is that they can't compete with unemployment insurance. So the people that they would hire are content to just stay home and collect those checks. But there was a study that came out of Yale last year that showed that unemployment insurance is not a disincentive for people to go back to work. So that's not the one to focus on. Another reason is these people who were bartenders, who were servers, who are now switching careers. They, they maybe during the pandemic went and took an online course and got a new job in tech or finance or in real estate just because they want to be in a more stable industry. And then lastly, foreign workers is a big part of this, right? President Trump had a ban on foreign workers that just lapsed on March 31st. So that was keeping people out. And then pandemic travel restrictions were keeping foreign workers who would fill a lot of these jobs out as well. Erica Pandy is a business reporter for Axios. After yesterday's landmark Chauvin verdict, there's been national attention on what's next for policing in the U.S., both in Congress and with the Justice Department. We're joined by Axios's Elena Treen from Capitol Hill. Elena, what are you hearing from Congress about police reform? As of now, um, I think the state of play is Democrats and Republicans are talking. The key players are Congresswoman Karen Bass and then Senators Cory Booker, a Democrat, and Senator Tim Scott, a Republican. They have different goals, but they are having active conversations trying to find some sort of compromise. I think the bottom line, though, is that a agreement on comprehensive reform isn't imminent especially when we have Congress is coming up on recess again, House is out next week, the Senate is out the following week. The longer time goes by that this isn't taken up, the harder it's going to be to find common ground. That brings up the Department of Justice announcement yesterday. Merrick Garland saying there's going to be an investigation into policing in Minneapolis. Will we see change that way? We could. And I think people are hoping for that. And I think that's why the administration is trying to take some sort of action uh, since they're not involved 
uh, intimately in these congressional conversations. And so this is a way that the Biden administration can insert itself into this conversation and and say, look, we are looking into this. We have a sweeping investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department's practices, and we're hoping that we can affect change uh, in that way. Elena Treen covers Congress in the White House for Axios. Thanks, Elena. Thank you so much, Nyla. One last thing before we go. Every Thursday, Axios puts out a COVID map where we look at new cases over a seven-day period. The story for the week is that the majority of U.S. states' case rate held steady, which after the last couple of weeks could be good news. Some specific takeaways, cases in California, New York, and Texas are down, but they're on the rise in Tennessee, Oregon, and Maine. And the state with the most cases? Still Michigan, with 6,891. You can find out more about your state at Axios.com. That's it for us today. You can reach our team at podcasts at Axios.com or find me on Twitter. My handle's Nyla Boodoo. Thanks to everyone who's given us a starred review. Please keep them coming. We ask because it makes it easier for others to find us. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll see you back here tomorrow morning.